Well, we are working our way through Mark's gospel, and this morning we come to uh, one of only three events that are recorded in Mark's gospel that aren't found in any of the other gospels. And in Mark's gospel, this is not just another healing. It plays a very important role in the overall message of the first half of the book. It's like a piece uh, of a puzzle, and uh, we're going to explore how it is uh, that it fits into the first half of Mark's gospel this week and then uh, next. So if you would, would you stand to read? You may have noticed that we're going to read from two passages this morning. The longer one is from Isaiah 35 and the shorter from Mark's gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, grant in your kindness that you would cause your word, Lord, to speak to each of us personally and individually. Be pleased to allow us to see Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall bloom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of God, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God comes with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And then from Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away into the region, oops, excuse me, 31. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And when they brought him to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epatha, that is, be opened. 
and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealous they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You may be seated. Well, every gospel is a biography of uh, Jesus, and every gospel preaches the gospel and, and looks for a response to us. And every gospel, and especially Mark's gospel, is a manual for discipleship. And those three things, a biography, a, an announcement of the gospel, and a manual of discipleship, offer windows to, to see this passage through. And what they show us, and what we'll see today, is we see the compassion of the Creator, we see the inbreaking of God's redemption, and we see the miracle that all disciples need. Now, Jesus is on the move. He leaves uh, Tyre, where he met the Canaanite uh, woman. Then he travels through Sidon, and then south uh, to the Sea of Galilee, and then north to the region of the Capolis. And if you had a map and you traced this out, well, it would seem like a very strange journey to you. It's, it actually is a horseshoe-shaped. It would be like going to Richmond via Philadelphia and Lancaster. Uh, and the reason that Mark is writing this to us is not so we draw this on a map, but so that we would locate Jesus culturally. Jesus is in Gentile country. And that means that what's happening here is for the entire world. Now, a man is brought to Jesus who was both deaf and can hardly talk. He wasn't born deaf. Something tragic happened to him, whether it was an accident or a disease, we don't know. But otherwise, he wouldn't have learned to talk at all. And as Jesus interacts with the man, we see the compassion of the Creator. His compassion is displayed in every action Jesus takes. He's just full of empathy. He identifies with this man in many, many ways. He pulls him aside. You see, this man's not just a face in a crowd to Jesus. He's not just somebody who has a, a disability. No, Jesus sees him as a person. And then what Jesus does will strike us as rather strange and, and perhaps a little gross. You know, if Jesus had, well, taken a, a tongue depressor and an otoscope and looked at this man, we'd be fine with it. But in, instead, what he does, he put his fingers in their ears, which is, well, not something probably most of us do very often. Uh, and then he spits and puts it on his tongue. Yuck. Why does he do this? Couldn't Jesus just speak a word and heal this man? Well, of course he could have. And the wondrous answer is this, that Jesus is communicating with this man with, if you were, sign language. He's uh, communicating that this man is about to receive healing, and he should expect it. And then Jesus looks up to heaven, and he sighs, and it's really kind of a groan. It's a very strong uh, word. One scholar uh, puts it this way, that Jesus' strong emotion as he wars uh, with the impact of what Satan has done in the bringing of these disabilities on this 
uh, man, and he's seeking God in prayer. You see, Jesus never did anything apart from the Father. And so he offers this sigh as a, as a prayer, wanting to be completely in lockstep with the Father. This word that's translated sigh here is translated groan in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, where we read that creation groans and the Holy Spirit groans. And we groan in longing for redemption, for the undoing of all that's come uh, because of man's rebellion. And then Jesus says, be opened. And this man is healed instantly. And the crowd's utterly amazed. And they say, he's done everything well. And in fact, they've spoken more than they realize. For these words actually echo the words that God uses to describe the creation when he stands back and looks at it and he's satisfied and he says, everything that I have made is very good. And see, the connections really here, Mark wants to draw attention to this connection that in creating the universe, God spoke and it was so. And Jesus in healing speaks and this healing takes place. Who in the landscape of the Bible could speak and heal? Well, Moses tells us, uh, excuse me, Moses tells God when he calls him uh, to go and confront Pharaoh that, well, he's not a very eloquent speaker. And the Lord rebukes him. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf and dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, says the Lord. And Mark wants us to see Jesus' identity here, that Jesus is the creator. Only the creator uh, could do this. The creator has come to us in Jesus. And Mark wants us to find ourselves in this story. Jesus identifies with this man emotionally. Uh, and that's one of the reasons he pulls him away. You see, this man's always been a spectacle. Now, if if he had been someone who walked with a cane, whose eyes were always closed, people would immediately know he's blind, of course. But instead, he's a man who's barely able to talk. People don't understand much of what he said. You can just imagine growing up uh, how uh, he was made fun of for years as a kid. Uh, His lack of hearing had cut him off from people. He's isolated. And Jesus doesn't want his healing to just be another spectacle. No, and he's very sensitive. He pulls this man aside. And this is how Jesus relates to us, isn't it? He's full of compassion. Uh, He doesn't maintain professional distance from us. Many of you know that uh, our youngest uh, daughter is a critical care nurse, and she works in a pediatric uh, unit that treats hearts. Well, the children who are there are very, very sick. And their parents, as you can imagine, are very, very distressed. And almost every week, a child dies on this unit. And Elizabeth couldn't work there if she fully entered in to all the pain and the anxiety and the grief that's uh, in that uh, place. She just simply wouldn't last very long. But Jesus can. Jesus is able to enter into all our anxiety, all our our hurts, 
all our weaknesses. He identifies with us fully. You see, every one of us has brokenness in our lives. Every one of us shares it. Uh, Some of us are very good at hiding it. We don't want anyone uh, to notice it. Um, But we all have things that we wish were different and cause us uh, to groan. We actually want to be different than we are. And Jesus knows this. This is why God has come in the person of Jesus to fully and totally identify with us. Have you seen that? Do you need to see it again? The whole Jesus, the creator, has come with compassion. But if you're a follower of Christ, there's more here for you. Jesus calls us to be compassionate the way he is. There was a little boy named Billy who came home from school one day, and his mom asked him, Honey, is everything all right? And he said, Well, I I guess so. Um, But uh, George came to school today and told the class that his father had died and they had just buried him yesterday, Mama. Mama... Billy was so upset that he cried all day. Well, what did you do? Well, I just laid my head on the desk and cried with him. That's what Jesus does, and that's what he calls us more and more to be able to do. Last of all, Jesus commands him to be silent. What a strange command to a man who now finally can talk. You know, he's not going to tell anybody uh, what happened. Well, he doesn't keep that command. But there's a reason why this command is given. And underscore something very important. The people seeing this miracle actually don't have all the pieces of the puzzle to understand the complete picture. And put this miracle in the context of what it actually means. The miracles by themselves don't explain why Jesus is doing them. And until you can connect that to the whole of Jesus' life, you simply won't understand what's happening here. And Mark Uh, has uh, left us a clue so that we might see it. And when we appreciate this clue, what we'll see is that God uh, is breaking into the world to bring his promised redemption in Jesus. We see the breaking of God's promised redemption coming in. Now, how can I say that? Well, it's this very rare word that's used to describe uh, this uh, man. It's behind the translation, could hardly talk. And it's a very rare word. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is, uh, uh, was widely uh, used by Greek-speaking uh, people, it occurs only once. It occurs there in Isaiah 36. It's literally, in in Greek, it's a uh, mogilaleos. That's someone who has a speech impediment. And he's healed in Isaiah 35. This healing is one of the signals that the day of the Lord has arrived. That the day uh, that God has promised to come has finally come. In other words, that the promises in Isaiah 35 are now being fulfilled in Jesus 
That's what you need to understand about the healing miracle of Jesus. And Isaiah 35 connects us to the larger story of the Bible. There's really just one story in the Bible. Uh, It's the story that actually, the only story that can make sense of life uh, here uh, in our world or in our particular lives. And it has four parts and it's like a symphony. There's creation, there is fall, there's redemption, and then there's new creation, sometimes called the consummation. And this is the gospel story in four chapters. You need all four of these chapters to really understand the gospel. And a lot of people only understand, too, that there's the fall, there's our, there's our sin, and then there's redemption, there's our salvation. And if you uh, don't have all four chapters, there's a lot you're going to miss. You're not really going to understand the place of work in your life. You're not really going to understand how comprehensive it is when the apostle says that we are to do all things uh, to God's glory. Your, your version of redemption will just kind of be Sunday only and kind of very private. Well, the Bible tells us in this story that the world was once a paradise and a garden, and now it's a wasteland. And of course, this has happened because we rejected uh, God. That's the second uh, chapter. We, we've rejected the God who is alone the source of all life and goodness and joy. But God doesn't leave things this way. God will transform uh, the wasteland, the, the desert. And that's why this rare word is here. It's, it's signaling to us that this transformation has uh, begun. And it's begun in Christ Jesus and it is ongoing. God has begun to roll back the fall and all its effects. And that won't take place in earnest until Jesus dies on the cross. That's where the victory that's necessary, the act of God that's necessary for him to to roll all this uh, back. Uh, And that's why Isaiah tells us that God is holy and righteous and he's come to bring justice. And when he does, the highway back to Zion and Jerusalem and the temple and to be in God's presence uh, will take place. What Isaiah doesn't make so clear there, but later intimates in, in his amazing prophecy, is that in the servant of the Lord, he himself will receive the judgment of God. He himself will stand uh, in our place. That's what makes it possible for us uh, to go to God, to be in his uh, presence, which all those name places really just point us to the temple and being close to him. You see, if you don't have the f- all four chapters, you won't understand God's original purpose for our lives. And uh, you won't really be able to work out all the many, many implications of the gospel. They'll be just kind of limited to your private and personal life. And you won't uh, see and have hope uh, for uh, the inbreaking of God's transformation in the city or uh, in the world. And you won't uh, see how every part of your life really is transformed uh, by coming to know uh, Christ. And so it's a day of joy what's happened to this man. It's a day of joy that redemption has uh, broken in. Because still for us, in our experience of the world, it's just a, the, the desert's a metaphor for all of life. We look for a garden, 
but we find ourselves in an arid, dry place. Uh, our world disappoints us, right? We, we are invited to behold the beauty of a rose, but then its petals fall off. You know, it tantalizes us with pleasure, but leaves us craving uh, for satisfaction. It's good, but its goodness is often overtaken with evil. Do you groan for the completion of God's redemption? Is it something, do you pray, you know, come, Lord Jesus, come? Or is your life really so comfortable and so full that you're not moved uh, to groan? You just can't identify with the, the cries in the book of Revelation of the people of God. How long, O oh Lord? Uh, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. So we've seen that through the window of biography that Jesus is actually the creator, the compassionate creator. And through uh, the window of the gospel, we've seen this fourfold gospel, this four-chapter comprehensive gospel that gives us hope uh, for the whole of the universe. And now we need to understand what it means that this passage tells us about discipleship. So, at one level, uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark is about the journey of the disciples from being summoned to follow Jesus uh, to the place uh, where they can understand the teaching of Jesus, see what Jesus is really uh, doing, and they themselves can open their mouths and speak about Jesus. And for this to happen, uh, uh, they need something to happen to them. And in fact, every disciple needs this to happen uh, to them. All of us need this. Now, I told you it's going to take two Sundays to fully see this. But the center of the Gospel of Mark is the eighth chapter. In the eighth chapter, we stand on the mountain. That's where uh, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the whole group and says, you are the Christ. And then the rest of the story to the end is Jesus going to the cross. It's really one long story of the passion, the suffering of Jesus. But right now, where we are in chapter 7, the disciples simply don't know who Jesus is. They've seen these powerful works of uh, God. And when we saw in chapter 6 the feeding of the 5,000 from these little loaves, um, uh, Peter uh, says to Mark, be sure to include that we didn't get it, that our hearts were hurt. We just didn't understand this miracle. We didn't see uh, what it was really telling us. In chapter uh, 7, uh, Jesus explains that real purity is not on the surface of people's lives. No, it's something deep and inward, and the disciples have to ask, what, is, what are you talking about? We don't, we don't get it. Um, and uh, the only person in Mark's gospel who gets what Jesus is saying in any of his parables is this Syrophoenician woman we met last time. She's the only one. And the disciples, you see, they're deaf. They're hearing the words of Jesus, but they don't comprehend what they mean. And so they can't speak about Jesus. They can't announce who he is. They can't announce the truth of his identity yet. Faith, you see, is a difficult matter. In fact, it's the most difficult matter in the world. 
And spiritually speaking, uh, all of humanity, apart from a work of grace, is depraved, is unable, as we confessed this morning, uh, to actually move toward God. God in his sovereign grace has to act uh, in us. He has to breathe life in us. We need a miracle. We need a new creation. The most amazing miracle God is doing uh, now is he is giving new life to people. He's raising people from the dead. He's making them new on the inside. That's the miracle that we need not just uh, once, but Isaiah again and again in his prophecy says that the people of God are deaf, they're dumb, they're blind. They're all uh, metaphors for their spiritual uh, condition. Jesus heals the deaf man. He opens his tongues and it raises the question for all disciples, can you hear Jesus clearly? Well, many Christians can't. Some of them because, well, their world is so hectic, it's, their lives are so crowded, they're in such a hurry that they're unwilling to be still and to be alone, to hear him, to open the word and just quietly be able to receive it. Others can't hear him because though the words are familiar, they can't combine it with with faith. Sometimes it's like this because they think, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And, And sometimes it's just that something has happened, some disappointment, perhaps some very difficult thing has happened in their lives, and they're just filled with skepticism. Their hearts are dull. They they become uh, unbelieving. But see, this is not just true of us individually. You know, there's there's 12 disciples around Jesus, and they were the closest to him. They they walked with him. They lived with him. This is true of churches, too. Whole churches need this miracle of being able to hear. So what does that mean? What am I getting at? Well, the biggest need actually in every church collectively is to be able to hear from Jesus, to see what he's doing, to be able to be a part of what he's doing so that they can uh, speak to others about Jesus. Disciples need to ask the Lord to open their ears and open their minds so that they can speak. Um, This is a hard thing. It actually is. And although almost all the churches I have ever served have been in a place of uh, critical need, need that they recognized, um, it wasn't long, a few years, sometimes a little longer than a few years, before they grew complacent. Most churches, in my experience, admittedly it's limited, you know, I have a very small sample of churches, are actually pretty complacent. Let me tell you a story about a church, a true story. It's not not a church I served. Every church is unique. But this paints the picture of what I'm getting at. Ed Stetzer, who's a name not known to probably many of you, but very well known in America, in his early ministry was led to a church of 35 senior adults. The median age was 68. For you boys and girls, that means uh, half of all the people were older than me, (laughs) and only half were younger 
than me. In fact, it seemed like there was an oxygen tank and a walker by every other pew. And they came to Ed and said, would you please help us to reach young people? Ed loved these people. He talked to them. He listened to them. He preached uh, about the church and its mission. And they began to grow excited about God's mission for their lives and their church. They wanted to love their neighbors and engage the community around them. Now, this congregation happened to be all whites. And they were kind of different than their neighbors, who were mostly lower middle class and working poor uh, people. In fact, their neighborhood uh, surrounding the church, their community was multi-ethnic and multicultural. And on Ed's last day there, Harold, who was over the age of 80 and the chairman of the board, poked Ed in the chest and said, Preacher, I really don't like all the changes that have taken place, and the kids are breaking everything. And, and he was right, of course. And any church that becomes isolated and disconnected from its community, that actually seeks and reengages uh, with it, is going to find the experience messy. It's just going to be messy. Still making eye contact, Harold still poking into Ed's chest, says, I still don't like all the changes that have happened around here and that the kids are breaking everything but it was worth it. From two years and 24 months, the church went from having an average attendance of 35 to having 175 people at worship. They were people from the neighborhood. Many of them were coming from the neighborhood. And the church had learned how to effectively minister uh, to the poor and had a special program uh, for single uh, mothers. I don't know what's in your future. But I can tell you that complacency is the great enemy for you going forward. Many, many churches, in fact, all the churches I've served grew numerically. Their income increased. They had more people willing to serve uh, as officers, and most of them uh, built out programs in ministries. But most of that was for themselves. They gave money away, of course, to missions. They all loved missions. But mostly they never reached their communities. And it's because they were complacent. And the reason they're complacent is they needed their ears healed. They needed Jesus to open their ears so they could hear him, so they could join in what he's actually doing. Every church, in fact, every Christian, needs the touch of the compassionate Christ. Every one of us needs to be confident that God's redemption's at work in the midst of all the desert and aridness of this world. And we all need to be able to hear what God is saying if we're going to share in it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, be pleased to do these things for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.